0: The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. We've got a really terrific show planned for you tonight. Returning guest, Tui Snyder, will be with us to talk about her latest book. It's called Six Feet Under Texas, which is about weird, bizarre, and famous graves and cemeteries throughout Texas. But we're also going to get into cemeteries in general and, and some other uh, places around the country that have a similar, similar reputation. So Tui will be with us in just a few moments. Looking forward to that. I will remind you, please subscribe to our channels. We've got a couple for you. One of them is our YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and you search for J.V. Johnson, you will find uh, the channel pretty easily. And the neat thing about subscribing, first of all, there's no fee. There's no, there's no charge to subscribe. But if you do that and you also click the notification icon, you will be alerted whenever we load, uh, upload new material or we go live. In addition to being notified of those things, you will have the ability to uh, look back on about 500, maybe even 600 now. 600 back episodes of beyond reality some great interviews there i i you know often i'll go back and and listen to a guest that i enjoyed a second or third time it's really because you, you don't hear it all the first time in 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 many cases you you know you're so involved in what's going on with the live program that you will uh you'll miss a thing or two and when you go back and listen you're like oh I, I didn't hear that the first time So all those back episodes are available to you on the YouTube channel. We also have a Twitch channel. Twitch channel does not archive the episodes, but it's a lot of fun for the live program because there's a lot of interactivity there. It also has a chat room. And uh, we do our Friday night program on the Twitch channel. And it will not be continuing on the J.V. Johnson YouTube channel for much longer, just so you're all aware of that. So subscribe to both of those channels. Find us on Facebook and just be part of our online community. It's a lot of fun. All right, so we're going to go to break here. We'll get our guests. Again, Tui Snyder will be with us returning to the show. Looking forward to this. We're talking about her book called Six Feet Under, Unique, Famous, and Historic Graves in the Lone Star State. Among other things, we've got a lot of conversation ahead of us. It's beyond reality. Looking forward to this night. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash That's J-O-H-A-W. Thanks for joining us tonight. We've got a great show ready for you tonight. We've got returning guest, Tui Schneider. Now, let's all be honest. How many of you, and I know I put myself into this category, but how many of you likes to take a peaceful walk through the neighborhood or local cemetery? And when you're doing that, you also get very reflective about your life, and you look around and you read the headstones of the people interred there. And you maybe you start to wonder, hmm, who, who was that person and what kind of life did they live? Or were they part of a bigger family that was in this community that I live in now? And do I know some of their descendants? These are all things that we, we ask ourselves, and we actually enjoy the mysteries involved. Well, if that's the case, if you think that way, like I think, then Tui Snyder is your person. Because Tui has written books, including the one we're going to talk about tonight which is called Six Feet Under Texas. It is uh, unique, famous, and historic graves in the Lone Star State. Toohey, so we welcome back to Beyond Reality. It's such an honor to have you back here.
1: Oh, hey, JV, thanks for having me back. I'm super excited.
0: So, you know, as I started to do this opening and I started to think about my fascination with cemeteries, um, and I know many that that share it, and. I also know that even if you don't have a fascination necessarily with cemeteries, there's nothing more peaceful and calming in many ways than to take a walk through a cemetery. And, of course, they're a little bit more quiet than maybe a street might be, but there's something else going on. What is our fascination with cemeteries, do you think? Well,
1: I think that... uh you know when people hear that I am I spend a lot of time in cemeteries, they react in one of two ways. either they're like you and they get it. Mm-hmm. or quite often there's those a lot of family members or people I meet for the first time, they they hear historic cemetery. They think that, you know, I dress like Morticia and I'm obsessed <laughs> with death, you know, which I mean I, I you know I kind of enjoy I have like I gotta admit I have some pretty fun kind of goth clothes, but that's not my point. For me, I think the fascination is that it helps connect us with history with a way that nothing else does because there you are standing at someone's grave that they put some time and thought into or their ancestors did. And it just, to me, it just really brings their life story which, you know, is the most interesting kind of history because in school I always thought history was the most boring topic. But now, you know, here I I do so much historical research all the time, I just it cracks me up. But I think when you are out there in nature, which gets you thinking reflectively too, and when you're in a cemetery, like you said, it is a little quieter than the street because people do leave you alone. It just it does create a sort of reverie and it really does make you think about what it was like to live in other times.
0: Yeah, it, it does instill that, uh, that, um, dose of curiosity, particularly when you start reading the names and maybe some, some of the other, uh, uh, messages that are left on some of these headstones that that kind of point to a to a different way of thinking maybe a a, a different sense of community i mean it just brings it and this is kind of a a, an oxymoron but it brings it alive in a way in a very strange way doesn't it
1: it does and that's why i like to tell people i say hey you know cemeteries are for the living and people they kind of squinch their eyebrows up, like, what are you saying? This is where we put the dead people. But we're really missing the point. We, you know, one of life's great mysteries is what happens after death. We wonder. We don't know. We're, we're going to find out eventually, but none of us can say 100% certain what what happens. But we do have these areas called cemeteries, and they, they really do exist for us. They're there to comfort the living and I would argue that they are also there to educate us and to connect us to history. And you mentioned the funny names. I do have to bring up probably my favorite name that I ever saw in a cemetery was Felisa. I still don't know how to pronounce it. It was like T H L I T H A. But oh, wow. I mean, you know, that that got me that got me wondering.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and there there are a couple of cemeteries around me now. I'm in Cooperstown, New York, and upstate New York. Still to this day is very rural, so there are these little rural oh. cemeteries, these little plots, and you walk through some of these and you see a lot of names like and I and I can't pronounce half of them half of them, half of them you know, but things like Ebediah as Ezekiel or you know some of these these yeah. names that we just don't really use as much today, um, but you know you have whole cemeteries filled with folks with those names. It was probably uh, uh, either a big family or probably a group of immigrants that moved in a group, Um, but it's telling a story regardless.
1: And just through their name, just through the simple fact that a name can somehow feel so archaic and foreign to us now, just shows us, it's a little reminder, there'd be so many other things if we could just you know, travel in time and go back to I don't know 1854. It would be such a foreign world to us in so many ways. Even our name, you know, the name Jake or something. Or well, that's kind of an old-fashioned name, but a lot of names would seem like I don't know. <laughs> I can trying to think of modern names would seem strange to them now. So I think that just just something as simple as looking at names is a really great way to connect to history.
0: And the other thing that you can't help but do is look at you know birth and death dates and start to do the math and realize that it was such a time of, you know, there were a lot of people that died young back in some of these historic cemeteries. And many times you'll see infant graves as well, because I, I think that the infant mortality rate, you know, in, in the 19th century was somewhere around 50%. It was pretty high for some parts of the country. and It was very high. Yeah, and you look it's- at, and and, and the one thing I noticed is a real dichotomy. Either you, you didn't make it past, let's say, 30 or you live to 80. There's not a lot of in between.
1: You are so right. And especially with children, you know, you, those first five to six years were very precarious. And I do like to go to historic graves because I like graveyards. I like to go to ones where, you know, the most recent grave was like a hundred years ago. So everybody there would be dead. And so I'm, I'm thinking about I'm not thinking about death. I'm thinking about history. Yeah. But I got to tell you, when I see a row of children's graves, and especially when, you know, they died from simple things I've looked up, things that we are so easily treatable now, like tetanus. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I did a, a video about the 4th of July about how, I don't know if you've heard this before, but there was a thing called patriotic lockjaw. And it was uh, because they couldn't treat tetanus yet. Mm-hmm. And you know how kids, you know how we are. Everybody, we, uh, on 4th of July, everybody sets off fireworks. Well, there was this incredible, thousands of people would die every year. I mean, more, you know, there was um, newspaper articles about how during a certain time period, more people died on 4th of July from tetanus, um, untreated tetanus, than died during the Revolutionary War, things like this. And so, you know, when you, when you walk through the, the cemetery it's humbling and you realize wow you know i just had my tetanus booster shot last year thank goodness it's a horrible way to go
0: yeah in in a time when we're dealing with our own health realities and things we hadn't seen haven't seen in our lifetimes um it's often a little bit sobering to understand that you know this is is almost minor compared to what uh you know what our ancestors lived through during the 19th century when there was no there were no antibiotics there were no mm-hmm. immunizations. There were no hospitals in most places of, of you know, of a rural uh, community. Um, and, you know, usually you had to f- fight it out on your own. And if, if you were strong enough, you'd survive. And if you weren't, you wouldn't. And it re- really was a toss up. In fact, it probably uh, gave the edge to the to the side of not making it, if anything.
1: You know, I have got a good epidemic story for you. Okay. Not something usually, but hey, let's talk <laughs> epidemic stories. But there is a beautiful country cemetery near me, Aurora Cemetery, and uh, in 1892, uh, this epidemic went through and just decimated that poor town. Meanwhile, there was a town two miles away, Rome. It's spelled with an H. But anyway, both towns are still there. But anyway, so Rome, meanwhile, had zero deaths from it. And I read when I was researching the epidemic, it was horrible. Even if you lived through it, there was a good chance you'd be partially paralyzed or blind. It was really nasty. I mean, imagine being blind back then when you're a farmer, you know, and you had, I mean, it's just such challenges. So uh, anyway, I was researching this. And it was widely reported in um, throughout America this epidemic. It was such a bad oh, the citizens of Aurora are fleeing. You know, it's this horrible epidemic. Meanwhile, I read letters to the editor from people in Rome bragging like, "Hey, over here in Rome, we haven't had a death in the past five years. You know, we uh, we don't even have a graveyard. Uh, they were, and you know, we're fine. People move here. Don't they? Didn't want? They were trying to. They're only two miles away, and they were trying to." Um, Distance themselves from Aurora and the epidemic there. And I thought, wow, I mean, talk about localized tragedy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when did you start to develop a fascination with, and you know, I just want to be clear for our listeners who may not have heard you on our program before, uh, you don't only write just about cemeteries. You've written a lot of other things as well. But for the sake of our conversation tonight, when did you start have this having this fascination with cemeteries?
1: I would I would have to have been when I was a little girl growing up in Virginia and next to when I would go to my Girl Scout meetings we would always this is back when I was a kid you'd walked everywhere yeah (laughs) my friends you know we'd show up early and we'd go play in the historic cemetery there and in fact we uh, actually when I was nine this creepy janitor tried to kidnap me and my friends and we were able to escape because we could run through that gen- uh, that um, cemetery and make it into the path through the woods before he could catch us. So, I mean, I guess it played a big part in my life in that regard. But yeah, I was always fascinated because there were some very old graves there, some very old style
0: ones. It's pretty interesting to see how things have changed. Now, of course, you know, we don't have the craftsmen as, as available as maybe they did 100 years ago or 150 years ago. Uh, and, and I think many of our headstones have gotten rather um, simple. Uh, I don't mean that mm-hmm. in a derogatory way. They're just simply presented. But then you see some of the older ones with, with uh, almost artwork all over. You know, it's, it's, it's a real shame because yes. many of those were made out of like just slate or, or uh, just, you know, field stone. And uh, they eroded so rapidly that most of the engravings are gone just from the weather. But um the ones that remain you can still see that, you know there's some designs and there's some you know some images and I don't mean images of the person who's deceased, I mean just some kind of ornate uh images. Uh and they put a lot of thought and work into those.
1: They did, yes. And that is a big difference I noticed from, you know, a hundred years ago. If you came into a windfall, you had a bit of money, you would be thinking, or you know, if everything all your other bases were covered, you'd think, oh, what kind of monument can I put at our family plot? But back then, too, families pretty much stayed put. They didn't move all over the way they do now. And there was a big change. What I noticed is the Great Depression made a big, huge change because once people weren't living uh, close to their loved one's graves and they couldn't go back for an annual decoration day is what they would call it where they'd have picnics and Mm -hmm. singing and they'd tidy the whole graveyard or cemetery once people had to move away for work and if they couldn't make it back to clean up the cemetery um then they became privatized and so that's when like well you know let's just have some flat markers that we can plant grass and you know run a lawnmower over (laughs) And so things really changed, but I mean, people used to really plan ahead for their headstones. I mean, I a lot of times, all people in their twenties, if they had some money, and they don't die till they're sixty, but they would have created some elaborate, uh, you know, the, you know, they had a sense of someone's going to come and remember me. People are going to think, what can I leave? We we don't think that way nowadays. Usually, most of my friends who have designed. Headstones. They've designed something for a loved one who just passed away and hadn't done it themselves.
0: That's right. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm at the age now where I'm not going to lie. I've thought about that part of the inevitable uh, more than once. And Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned uh, you know we don't move around or we move around a lot more now than than we used to. There is something comforting about being, I guess, buried forever with uh, family members and loved ones. And not a lot of people have that luxury anymore.
1: No, now it's quite rare. I mean even for people who weren't, uh, you know, super wealthy and couldn't have the big fancy monuments, they would still have if they could, you know, have some sort of plot somewhere, right. you know, people where they could, oh well, the locals, we all just have a common cemetery, everybody kind of gets buried here. You knew you would be with your family then.
0: It's interesting. You um you, you made a quote that I I actually got a chuckle out of. I saw it on your website. You say, you say I used to write fiction, but then I moved to Texas. <laughs> Tell, me about Tell me about that quote.
1: Oh, my gosh, that is so true. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I used to write sci-fi and whatever, and, you know, really stretch my imagination, try to come up with weird stories and strange characters and scenarios. Uh, yeah, but then I moved to Texas. I mean, a really great example of this would have to be the Aurora space alien grave, um, which did we talk about this at all last time? I think we I did, am, but, but it, it is well, book about
0: it. it is well worth repeating because it is such an amazing story and, and kind of an oddity <laughs> r- right there in Texas. You need to tell the story again.
1: I will tell it. And since you mentioned it, this explains like how I used to write fiction and, you know, and now I, then I moved to Texas. I, I, you know, was at a barbecue and a, met somebody and, and they just said, "Hey, you know, oh, I hear you're a writer." And I'm like, "Yeah." And they said, "Well, you know what? You should write." And I mean, I usually this is, I mean, in my earlier life uh, when I lived up north, this would usually be followed by some really boring tale or something. I'm like, "You know, why don't you write that if you're so passionate about it?" But this person goes, "You know, you ought to write about that little that little space alien they buried down the road a piece." And I'm like, "What? You know, what did you just say? Are you pulling my leg?" And well, you you course, had you,
0: know. you hadn't heard of th- that story until that moment.
1: No, I had not. Uh uh-uh. uh Which is so weird that because, must have been a know, real my shock. Grandma lived in near R- Roswell, and i I've, I've been pretty fascinated by UFOs since I was a kid. But yeah, I hadn't. So I really was like, "What? You are lying? You're, you're, you know, you're just you know I'm new. You're just going to tell me something ridiculous." But, yeah, no, I, I went and I looked, and not only was there this one spacecraft, so there was, let me back up, because I looked into it, and in 1897, there, a newspaper, Dallas News, reported that there was a, a, a cigar-shaped crash that didn't just crash, it exploded, it didn't just explode the locals found a charred little body in it that was quote unquote not an inhabitant of this world. I love that line. That just that was really did me in. I was like, what? <laughs> and so it was the day before Easter. And as you did when a stranger comes through town, I have several examples of strangers coming through town and dying and how the locals would be like, well, oh I will give them a nice burial. That's what they did to this little alien. Not knowing what it was, they put it in a I think a child sized coffin and they buried it in Aurora Cemetery and it is so crazy. So when, here's where it gets even weirder, like I thought that, like, you know, doesn't that seem plenty weird? I'm satisfied with the weirdness aspect, but no, it just gets weirder. (laughs) Because when I do research, I want to get my own information on it. I don't want to just take what people are saying now. So I try to go as back as close as I can to the source. And so I dug around in, in newspaper archives, and, you know, I just, innocently types the word 1897 and airship in, and I got hundreds of responses, and then that's when I, what was new to me was that there had been hundreds of airship sightings reported in 1897 in Texas, and so that has just been this ongoing research project that I just, I just, you know, a book, I, hopefully the book will come out next spring. I've, I've been working on it for quite a while. It's just a crazy, crazy tale.
0: Is that the book, uh, The Great Texas Airship Mystery of 1897?
1: Yes, yes. I gave a talk um, about it at the International UFO Congress last year, and that's when I realized when I was preparing for that talk. I realized that I had enough material for like a four-hour talk. I was like, (laughs) holy moly, let's just make a book already. It's just one of those ones that I never feel satisfied with the research I do. You know, you hit a point with research where you're like, well, I've got enough. I could move on. But the alien one, it's just like, yeah, it's just nutty.
0: Yeah. So it's j- just so I understand. So when you were when you found out about the alien grave, which I want to talk a little bit more about in a second here, and then mm-hmm. you did some more research, you uncovered these airship sightings. Are you connecting the two?
1: Oh, yeah. This was one of the airship sightings. Yeah. This oh, okay. one was just One of them. There's about a there's a period of time and I haven't really honed it down, but especially March, April, May, there were just a glut of them in Texas, all throughout Texas. But what's interesting, and they were actually airship sightings in eighteen ninety seven and just to be clear, I mean the biggest thing flying in the sky at that time in America should have been a vulture I mean they were not there was not controlled manned flight or whatever alien but
0: <laughs> they they was had, not I think, didn't they have did they have flight. did they have hot air balloons at that point
1: they did The yeah. well, goffier brothers in France had created those like in 1783, I think. Right. Um, so those have been around, but they were in the end in in the Civil War. The Union uh, forces had gone up in a balloon so that they could do some recon and spy on the Confederates. But the thing is, at that you could go up in a balloon, but it was not controlled craft. You, you went up, you looked around, you came down. It's not like the Wright brothers. They went up and they actually controlled and flew. Um, so, that, you know, there were not, even the balloons that they had were not very controlled at that time. I mean, you know, so what people were describing in um, this 1897 period wasn't something that really should have been existing um, at that point. And what's really weird to me is it started actually in the fall of 1896, these sightings over in, on the West coast in the San Francisco area. And then they work their way across and then they show up in Texas and then they start to, you know, and, and there's, scattered throughout america but then they keep it's like it was going from west to east that was one of the things that really got me about it i mean my feelings are all over about it i you know i I don't claim to know the definitive answer but i just i want to know what was reported so i just keep digging and digging
0: i'm fascinated by the story and i'm particularly fascinated by the alien grave getting back to that part of the discussion here Mm-hmm. You read you read newspaper reports of this were there any did you find any eyewitness accounts of the burial and what was placed in the coffin descriptions or did that not exist
1: Is This really that, oh, that drives me nuts I haven't I've I've only gotten second hand descriptions that yes it was it was buried immediately I haven't gotten a, a a really satisfying description of the burial now there was supposedly some strange material with it it was buried with some bits of metal. It was buried, you know, that were found around it. Um, and some sort of paper that had, you know, what they described as some strange writing in it, hieroglyphics they called it. You know, I mean, it wasn't like Egyptian, but, you know, just some strange writing that wasn't a recognized alphabet, which I'm just dying to to see. Um, but what's weird about it now, you know, a lot of people say like, well, obviously this is a bunch of malarkey because they didn't go all CSI and, you know, <laughs> to dismantle the body, but you know that you just didn't do that in 1897. There was a real stigma against an autopsy. Even if your best, you know, your husband or wife died mysteriously, the thought of defiling their body with an autopsy was just not in their mindset of 1897. Their their mindset was more, you wanted to be buried and given a good Christian burial. So yeah, and
0: that was a be, lot to it. That was going to be my next question. Did they give this mysterious? body a christian burial because burial because often if you if you couldn't weren't known to have been baptized and have been christian they wouldn't even put you in the same cemetery as those who were
1: yeah you know if they if they knew what you were (laughs) they would put you there but um you know i think they i don't where it's buried is kind of the masonic section which is just you know the masons would let a lot of people bury mm-hmm. um, their dead there. So I had tried to figure that out. I don't know. I really don't know who. I, like I would like to know who officiated, if there was a minister involved, or you right, know how many right. people were there. I have not had a satisf- I haven't had a satisfying description of that. I mean, you know, the little town of Aurora had gone through a lot. That's where they had had that epidemic, where um, recently, and they had had a fire, and they'd had a, a blight. And they'd had pretty much, it was like biblical proportions, badness in that little town. So I think it was kind of like, oh, now we got an alien, whatever, you know, let's just bury
0: it. I'm just so curious. And has anybody ever tried to exhume that body?
1: Oh, yes, yes. So in 1973, um, the guy who was the head of MUFON in Texas, and he Mm -hmm. also happened to write for Bill Case was his name. He wrote some articles about it. And his buddy Jim Mars um, yeah, also Jim. wrote. He wrote, "Yeah, Jim's great. I got to meet meet him. He really was the reigning expert." And I, yeah, I talked to him about it, and it, which was super helpful. Um, but so this is 1973. There's a big gap from 1897 to 1973 where the story just sort of faded into oblivion and. And people just sort of forgot about it. You know, it wasn't spoken of. But this guy Bill Case and Jim Mars, they brought it up. And so once they published those articles, it really – those articles got picked up and spread around and, you know, kind of went viral as viral as you can go in 1973. And uh, so lots of people came to this little town of Aurora, which, like, currently has a population of about 400. And they were not thrilled by all the people tramping around in their (laughs) little, you know, country burial ground and so they they got the cops there and had them keeping track of it 24 7 they had a vigil like for two weeks solid they were there the very day that they quit someone came and they the original headstone just disappeared the original headstone was this kind of cool looking rock a rugged rock but it had a uh it had a little like cigar shaped um, craft on it with portholes drilled on it, and uh, which is really neat. Um, but even worse, so, you know, I talked about Jim Mars and Bill Case. They mm-hmm. came back, and not only was a headstone missing, but when they ran a metal detector over the plot again, it no longer picked up um, evidence of metal that it had. Like they had gone over there where the alien was buried, mm-hmm. and they were. Picking up some sort of metal, which, you know, pe- people did say there were reports that it had um, metal had been put in the coffin with it. Um, and then they they noticed these three weird holes that were kind of drilled in the ground. Because the, the ground from when I spoke to Jim, he made it sound like, you know, the ground didn't particularly look disturbed. It was like someone had... Surreptitiously, you know, I'm I'm envisioning using some sort of device to kind of, you know, scrape the grass off, lift up, dig the thing out, and then put it back and try and make it look like um, nothing was there. So super disappointing. Meanwhile, you know, they this whole time they were asking the cemetery association, you know, you have to get a court order before you can exhume anyone. Right. And and they, you know, I've heard some people say that oh, you know, they they wouldn't allow it because you have to contact next of kin. You know, hardy har. Um, but really it was just they wouldn't give the they would allow it to happen um so even as of today i mean i wish they would you know
0: well it would certainly so, answer a few questions wouldn't it
1: it really really would and you know it is interesting because like i started looking into this in 2012 and even back then the locals were pretty tight-lipped about it but in the like by 2016 something shifted and now uh aurora like if you go to their like aurora.gov or whatever their, their official um, website is, you'll see they've incorporated an alien hmm. into their logo, and now it says Aurora, a legendary Texas town. And they have, when you drive into town, which, you know, driving into Aurora and driving out of Aurora, it's one of those, you know, don't blink kind of towns. Right. Um, they have this neat little windmill and a spaceship and uh, like, a ha- like a half-crashed spaceship there and a little cutout of an alien. <laughs> I mean, they, they're, my point is now they're kind of into it. They're like, hey, is this is a neat part of our history. Whereas, you know, like as recently as 2012, people were like, we don't want to talk about that.
0: You know, I f- that's that's an interesting point because places like Salem, Massachusetts, went through the same metamorphosis where they disavowed their past, they thought it was an ugly past. Yeah. They didn't want to recognize mm-hmm. it, and now they embrace it fully. Not that they condone what happened, but they understand the history of what happened helps teach pe- teach people about, um, you know, the old saying, uh, "Learn history, or you're doomed to repeat it." Kind of thing. Um, yeah, and a lot of places around the country are starting to embrace this this you know these these more macabre or uh, strange parts of their history, and uh, they're finding some some real pleasure in doing that. And I'm glad, as somebody who enjoys these things, that they're doing that.
1: Yeah, it is so important. And... You know, this is an interesting one, but even when something bad has happened in your town, um, like I wrote a book about this guy who dressed as Santa Claus bank robber. And, you know, because one of the biggest manhunts in Texas for was for Santa. I mean, like I'm telling you, and then they end up <laughs> lynching Santa. Like I said, you know, I used to write fiction, like you pointed out. But uh, my point was I, was I was talking to different historians, and I wanted to get information about the lynching. And the historians, many I, – I could not find a historian in the local – Area who would talk to me about that? They would just be like, "Let's talk about our our other neat things that happened." You know, we don't we don't want to dwell on that, and we don't want to condone that. I'm like, we're not condoning it. We're showing that by talking about a lynching, it really illustrates that this is a big reason that we have a, a good intact legal system. That's why we have law enforcement agents. We don't. So, oh, ironically, the I finally got the local sheriff to talk to me about it. It turns out he's a history buff, and he had all sorts of great information. So it is. I, I'm I'm totally with you. People shouldn't you know shouldn't hide their history. You don't have to be proud of everything that happened in your area, but we need to learn from it.
0: We do need to learn f- from it, and I think some of these stranger parts of uh, local history. Uh, that are parts of legends and lore for local areas. They just develop. They give. They give that area whatever it happens to be a character that they might not have otherwise. I think it's a really important part of tradition and history for those areas. So I'm glad they're doing it. Let's talk a little bit about um, the reason you decided to write this book. Obviously, you you started to look around. Again, it's called Six Feet mm-hmm. Under Texas. You started to look around. You started to see these. Um, I guess st- stories, and then did you did you match the graves to the stories, did you, or did you find the graves first and then research who these people were and discover the stories? Which one came first?
1: Well, it was actually gonna, you know, it was actually gonna be a, a small chapter in my book that's about cemetery symbols because I wrote a book called Understanding Cemetery Symbols, which explains what the different things mean on headstones. Well the, you know, why is there an upside down torch or what does a pentacle actually mean? You know, was grandma a witch? No, you know, stuff like that. And I but my editor said, you know, this is this is and I was having a hard time like making that chapter small. And my editor said, you know, this is another book. So I pulled it aside and I've just been, you know, it's one of those projects that's been backburnered for a while. But I thought this is the year for it because visiting historic cemeteries right now during a pandemic is a really fun activity that gets you out of the house. It's easy to practice social distancing and, you know, it could be a great way to learn some history and fun. So that's really why I felt like, you know, this is the year for this book.
0: Yeah, it's it is it is the year for this book. It's the year for uh people to start actually opening books and and start delving into some of these things again. I think we've we get we got so busy for there. At least I know myself that mm-hmm. other than stuff I needed to read for the show, I was kind of just, you know, um too busy to do anything else and this has helped me rediscover my love for reading and particularly things that I just have a personal interest in like this. Tell me about um, there's so many stories in the book but I, there there are a few that stood out to me that I'm really anxious to hear you tell its uh, particular <laughs> audience but the the story of uh, it's is it marine Johnson Johnson
1: Oh I absolutely am enchanted by this woman Yeah. yes Ma- marine Johnson Johnson. And, you know, she really does go by or went by Johnson Johnson and her friends would tease her that she had to hy- a hyphenated name because she, a single Johnson, couldn't possibly achieve as much as she did. She was a very busy woman. Uh, she was an opera singer. She'd been a, in World War II. She was uh, a whack. Um, and she even, the, uh, oh, she, she was the first postmistress, as they used to call them. Back in 1957 in Eastland, Texas, and uh, she just was so—I don't know. She was such a dynamo. She's one of those people where I wish I could have met her. She, like, one of the first things she did was she got rid of all the spittoons inside, and she put like potted plants inside her. Can you imagine spittoons in a post office now? But back then, there were. She made a a, a sculpture of a lion out of an old tailpipe, and, and you know, put it in the front of the. The uh, post office. She made like a um, used petunias to make a flag, like red, white, and blue petunias. to Make a big old thirty-foot like flag, um, garden-themed thing. But the thing that is really amazing about her is she just took it on herself, uh, and she asked permission first from you know the highest in the chain of command at the post office if she could make a mural out of postage stamps. And what she did, she ended up making this mural that you can see for free if you go to Eastland and just go to their post office. And I should say that with all, I have like 50 chapters in the book and it makes great armchair travel. You know, I, I like to say like my books will take you places. It might just be time travel historic, or you could actually go there. Cause like, if you live, you know, realize, Hey, I'm going to be going through Eastland. I have the address where you can go to their post office and see it for yourself. It's like a six by 10 foot mural made of Thousands of like eleven over eleven thousand postage stamps, and not only in it's really beautiful. You got to see. I have pictures in my book, but she um, made this design that is like it's it, it's really neat. It has a picture like a Ben Franklin stamp, like a five cent stamp, but it's made out of Ben Franklin stamps. Mm-hmm. I'm not describing it very well, but it's just amazing. Meticulous took her years. She actually got help from the Smithsonian Institute as far as how to. Do, uh treat the stamps so they'll be of archival quality but to top it off she wrote letters to every uh, like all everyone in the um, United Nations and to presidents and she asked them hey what's your favorite stamp she'd send them a stamp and say this is my favorite stamp uh, what's yours and could you please sign it and send it back so her mural actually has, Uh, The signatures of six presidents, like she's got Richard Nixon, um, Linda Johnson, uh, John F. Kennedy, I think Harry Truman. Um, Yeah. And you can just go and see this. It's still there. Now, the weird thing about her. um, So she did this amazing piece of work. I just in a lot of, you know, I kind of think of this as overlooked history because I've met people who live in Eastland and don't know about this. And I think, oh, my goodness, this is something, like you were saying, we need to celebrate our local history and the quirky things. She is someone that more should be known about. I I think if I kept digging, I really could write a whole book about her. But one of the weirder things about her, which I, I don't quite get, is that when she died, she actually wanted to be buried perpendicular to her husband. And you probably know, you know, a lot of times, like, if I'm in a cemetery and I notice a grave that's way off by itself or at a different angle than everybody else you know if there's all of them are facing west but then i suddenly notice one that's facing north I'm, I'm curious like why is that right they will do do that sometimes with outlaws or someone you know sort of a way to like you're not one of us <laughs> kind of to ostracize them and death but in her case she wanted to be buried perpendicular to her husband and i have a photo in the grave i mean in the book um, because she, she wanted to be buried at his feet because I will always, you know, to serve him in the afterlife, I will always be his servant. I was like, wow, wow. not a women's liver apparently.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so j- just because I have to ask her, her name, last name, Johnson dash Johnson was because she felt it was important to have it twice
1: friends joked i don't know why she hyphened it that is a good point i mean it was just always hyphened.
0: i had uh, assumed hyphenated. when i saw the name i thought well maybe she her last name was johnson and she married a johnson unrelated she
1: was yeah she was mm-hmm. she but was she, she and she married a, so it's interesting because on the one you I know see. it seems so interesting it would have been the same her. yeah yeah I, I don't know you know it's one of those things i would have really liked to heard it from her mouth um why she did that <laughs>
0: That's funny. Uh, there's another one that I that immediately caught my attention, and I know you have favorites as well, but the story of... Uh, it's Karen Silkwood, and the reason that caught my attention is because I remember there was a movie with that name, and I wasn't sure if there was a connection until I read the story and realized there was. Tell us the the story about Karen Silkwood.
1: Yeah, and you know what? I had never seen the movie. That was one of the things I did for research. I think it's a really great movie, by the way, and I looked it up, and I saw that the... People, you know, since it was a biopic, the people who, um, and it has Meryl Streep in it, and it has Cher in it. Cher is great. Uh, And everyone who was represented in the movie, they actually, I read an interview where they were commenting on it and saying that, yeah, they did a good job. I think, you know, who wouldn't want to be played by Cher or Meryl Streep anyway? I mean, not the most glamorous job because, um, well, here, I'll, I'll get into it. Karen Silkwood, now, she grew up in Texas but she went through a pretty painful divorce and so she moved to Oklahoma and a friend there said hey you know you could there's a job over at this nuclear power plant you could probably work there now Karen Silkwood had always been smart and really liked science and so the job seemed really interesting she was you know involved and in, they were doing working with plutonium pellets so plutonium is super duper toxic and she started to notice that like there were some health and safety issues going on. And the, the, the bigger ups, the big wigs at the nuclear plant were kind of smoothing it over, being like, oh, yeah, you know, just rinse yourself off. Oh, you got dosed a little. Oh, well, just, you know, scrub you down. Well, you, you know, you don't have to be exposed to much plutonium at all to have to be guaranteed that you're going to have cancer. And she and her friends actually got tested at one point and they all learned that they, you know, were especially her. Um, we're going to get cancer. Uh And so, yeah. And so, you know, as as she got more and more upset about this, she kept complaining. And she was also worried that, like, if they, she she also discovered, this was really frightening too, she discovered that someone was messing around with the quality control records. And so she thought, you know, if this our nuclear plant passes along some of these faulty um, fuel rods, it could cause, meltdown you know there could be a Chernobyl or could be yeah. a big explosion so she was understandably very nervous uh, so she joined the union and she ended up you know she actually testified in front of the um, atomic energy commission and uh, and she started kind of doing her own you know her own little research she was just keeping track trying to find out what was going on now people knew she was doing this research even though she was trying to be surreptitious about it and so things get weirder and weirder. I'm condensing a lot because there are, there's been books written about this, which I have. <laughs> and uh, it's really elaborate, but for the sake of the book, you know, it, one thing I did in the book too, is I, um, when something was a very complicated thing like this as well, I do include a for further reading section. Like if any of these chapters really capture your imagination, and you want to learn more about them, you know, more power to you because there have been books and movies about it. But long story short on the night that she was, set to meet with someone and be a whistleblower and you know hand over some information that she had gotten she had this manila envelope with her that people saw and she was like i have some pretty you know damning evidence in here that i'm going to hand over to like a new york times reporter and um and a union official and so as she was driving uh on that way her car went off the road and she died in the crash and they tested her blood and they were like okay she had alcohol and quaaludes in her bloodstream, you know, case closed. But an independent, uh, you know, investigator hired by her family discovered that this is not a single car accident. There was evidence that her vehicle had been bumped and run off, you know, run off the road. So it's a very um, chilling account, and it's just someone really paying the price, you know, the ultimate price for being, uh, trying to be a whistleblower, trying to, you know, trying to... Thinking of the safety of others, and, I can't uh, imagine.
0: I, I can't imagine. You probably didn't stop with your research there. You probably, mm-hmm. when you started to recognize the the uh, abnormalities of the story and the inconsistencies, mm-hmm. you probably have a. I bet you have a notepad somewhere that says to look into this further because that's I an do. that's an amazing story and it's one that I'd never heard. Um, you know about the details of the, myster- the mystery surrounding all of this.
1: Yeah, I would tell anybody who's interested in it, the great place to start is start with the movie, Silkwood, because like I did, I wasn't going to mention the movie if it, because sometimes movies are made, and, you know, as someone who does a lot of historic research, I just end up, like, my head hurts from rolling my eyes so much. You know, they they skew the facts so much that this one actually was good, and, like, I even, you know, saw interviews where the people depicted were like, yeah, this is an accurate depiction, so, which isn't always the case with quote-unquote history movies you know i don't want to watch them if they distort it so yeah this this story was so sad i mean she was only 28 yeah so she young basically yeah and she was so passionate and really cared and wanted to do something right and was trying to you know right some wrongs that she ran into all sorts of stuff just unfair and just got well died
0: young you know one of the things uh, we'll tell this next one and then we've got to take a quick break but one of the things Mm -hmm. that um, I always find fascinating when I have discussions about the paranormal especially when we talk about ghostly activity uh, I'll ask somebody who investigates ghosts you know how they got their interest or when did they have their first experience and frequently above any other place that's mentioned is the town of Gettysburg Pennsylvania which has Mm -hmm. obviously a civil war connection and obviously, it was the site of the bloodiest battle in American history. Over 55,000 uh, men were either killed or wounded. Uh, un, the, the land around Gettysburg is soaked in blood, so you can understand why there'd be so much paranormal activity there. But one of the stories in, in your book that grabbed me because of the Civil War connection is the story about the German immigrants that... Um, were trying to not be part of the Confederate army because Texas had seceded from the Union and was joining the Confederacy and was forcing all their able-bodied men to uh, to go to war. Um, tell the story because it's awfully tragic, but, but the good news is they've been honored in, I think, a very just way after the fact.
1: Yeah, so this was, um, this is down in Comfort, Texas, and This is a story where my book was about to go to press, and I discovered that I actually have a family connection to this. So, my book is actually dedicated to these people. But, um, so yeah, one thing about the Civil War that I think gets overlooked a lot is that when states seceded, it wasn't always a cut and dry decision. It wasn't like, you know, when Texas seceded in 1861, it wasn't like every single Texan said, okay, let's secede from the Union. There were actually a lot of German settlers here in Texas. You can still feel the effects of German culture here. We have great, um, lots of great German restaurants, for instance, especially down in the Hill Country. That's where this, um, where the German settlers came through in the 1800s. So these people had some, you know, we when we think of people immigrating, we tend to think of Staten Island. You know, we, or we don't remember, we don't think about the fact that Galveston was a really great doorway to America as well. So people's life, you know, entry into America could have happened there as well. And in fact, oh, this is really kind of cool, too. Um, Texas has its own sub-dialect of German that brought here, and it still exists to this day, and people are studying it because it's dying out. But anyway, all these Germans who had come to America and had recently taken an oath of allegiance to the Union were not really feeling it when they were told to secede. They were like, eh, you know, we are Troja der Union. I'm probably butchering that, but that (laughs) means (laughs) – I don't speak German, but that means loyal to the Union. And so they were like, hey, we don't want to be forced to fight for something we don't believe in. For one thing, a lot of them did not believe in slavery as well. And so it, was, it put them in a bad position. Well, lucky for them, the governor said, hey, I'm, I'm making a proclamation. You guys have a month. You have 30 days. Anybody who doesn't want to fight for the Confederate Army, I'm giving you a little time to just clear out. I'm giving you 30 days. So in August of 1862, there was this group of men, and they met kind of down by Kerrville and they you know, elected the leader. They had a plan, that like, we're going to ride into Mexico, we're going to sail north, and then I think to New Orleans, and they were going to hook up with some Union forces. That was their plan. And since they had a month, they thought, you know, we don't have to race. We can kind of take our time. We don't have to find strategic positions to camp. We can kind of camp out in the open and make sure our horses are watered and we can do a little hunting along the way. So they were doing this, I mean, I would call it leisurely, too much. I and mean, it wasn't like a camping trip, but they weren't forcing themselves to march and, and making their horses work really hard. They were like, we got time. But about, I don't know, a few days in, some of the men noticed they got, they were feeling uneasy. Some of the lookouts were like, hey, we think we're being followed and we might get attacked. And some of them turned away, like about 30 of them left. Uh, but the rest of them remained. And sadly, they were ganged up upon by a group of rogue Confederate soldiers. Uh, there was a guy, Captain James Duff, and he had some very well-armed men, and he outnumbered them considerably. like He had 125 men. They only had about 40 left, um, and he he attacked them at Noises, the Noesis River at dawn. So sometimes this is called the Noesis River Massacre. And to top it off, after Duff and his troops just slaughtered as many of the men as they could they the ones that were uh, wounded rather than take them captive which was the tradition what you were supposed to do they he went through and just made you know he told his men shoot them make sure they're all dead or you know if they're on their way out just leave them to die and they did not bury them which was a huge slight as well just leave their bodies to rot so about 17 men made it away and after the war they went back and they retrieved those bleached bones, as they were described, and they took them back, and it didn't take them very long. Like, the war ended in 1865. By 1866, they'd erected this really impressive obelisk, and they have a memorial there, um, they have an American flag there that is permanently at half-mast. And one thing is kind of cool about it, it only has 36 stars on it because that's how many states there were in the Union as of 1865. So yeah, it's pretty incredible. And I was really shocked. So I was my mom was talking to me and she said, Oh, honey, you're doing a book about unique graves in Texas. Did you do anything about that Oasis River massacre? And I'm like, What? Yeah. She <laughs> goes, Oh, well that those were our one of you know, some of those were our ancestors. And I'm like, what? So I, I haven't yet found the names exactly of who, but I didn't realize I had that connection to the book. So yeah, obviously I'm gonna I'm gonna keep <laughs> researching that one.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. But the the Civil War uh, actually shows up in a bunch of these stories.
1: It does. It it and you know, it's, it wasn't intentional. I'm not someone like I lived in Virginia till I was ten, and, and like I was sick of the Civil War by then. Sure. <laughs> there was a playground fight over the Civil War. I was like, "Really, people? Come on!" But it, as you mentioned, there was such a huge loss. Uh, when I give presentations, I love to just show well, love, but I mean, I like to um, show a graph of showing all the deaths yeah. from all the conflict. And I don't have to say anything. I just, I'm like, take a look at this. I don't have to toss any numbers out. Here's how many people died in every conflict yeah. in American history. Look at the Civil War. It's it, it was just such a, I just think the entire country was grieving. I mean, everyone must have experienced, you know, every family must have been affected. And so and it affected the way we treat the dead i mean suddenly embalming techniques needed to be improved because soldiers needed to be transported home, and caskets started to be mass produced you know and before they'd mostly been made by you might have made your own yeah. or you would get you know get them locally so just things it really did impact um impact things so when you when you start studying historic cemeteries here you're going to bump into the civil war. <laughs>
0: Well, there was so you know, the, yeah, there was so the much loss, uh, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Everyone was touched by loss, both sides of of the war. I mean, usually you've got, you know, we're on one side and the other side's the enemy. And when we count casualties, we basically are concerned with our own. But in this particular case, both sides were American. So every casualty was an American casualty. Everybody was touched. And also, one of the things you probably know and certainly found in your research is that after the Civil War, people started to look for ways to connect to those people they lost. You have to remember, most people didn't have photographs of the loved ones they lost. When they left to go to war, that was the last time they ever saw them and the last time they will ever see them. And in many cases, you know, the images of what they even looked like would fade. Uh, so there was a desperate cry of people trying to reach loved ones that they had lost, and that could kind of give rise to the spiritual movement.
1: Yes, and and actually people's um, attitude towards, it definitely did. I mean, people were, every, everyone had been touched by death, everyone wondered, and, you know, we, I, you know, people say, well, why, why did we, you know, Queen Victoria's mourning practices after she lost? her beloved Prince Albert. We adopted a lot of her practices uh, here across the pond, but it's we needed something. We needed, you know, that elaborate grief. We we needed something, a way to express that. But I definitely can see the connection between the Civil War and spiritualism.
0: Tonight we're talking with Tui Snyder, returning guest to the program, about her new book. It's called Six Feet Under Texas. We're talking about unique, famous, and historic graves in the Lone Star State, among other things. Tui, you... Um, when did you set out to write the book, and how long did it take?
1: Oh, you know, that's hard to say, really, because I every time I'm researching one thing, I do a lot of newspaper research. So, you know, I, I and I, when I do, I set a timer for 20 minutes, because when that dings, I need to look and see, oh, am I still staying on topic, or have I gotten off topic? I could get distracted by, you know, interesting stories that I see in the In the headlines, so I have so many feelers out all the time, and so many projects going. Um, I did get serious about the book and and start putting it into a document, probably in May of this year. But that said, I had done the research on these places, you know, over the past really ten years.
0: The um, list of stories is long. You've got a lot of really cool stuff, and what I really like what you did is you made every one of them personal you told the story of the person that was interred there why it's important plus the uniqueness of of the grave itself tell me about bonnie and clyde's bodies are they buried in texas you you talk about this don't you
1: yes i do and yeah and uh, once again this a lot of like like karen silkwood this is another case where bonnie and clyde are so infamous and one thing that gets me about them is, I mean, they were criminals. They were nasty people. Yeah. And yet, you know, they, they've they been elevated to the status of folk hero. And it's interesting to me when that happens, because some criminals, they're we just see them as criminals and others don't. And I think in part, Of why we see them you know part of why we see them as folk heroes might be because bonnie was so good at branding them she would send poems and photos to newspapers and you know if she were uh, happening now she'd have an instagram account or something you know but uh and i do laugh because um Nowadays, you know, I do I do a lot of travel writing too, and quite often when I'm in a historic hotel, they want to tell me that oh, and among our famous clientele, it was Bonnie and Clyde, and I don't know, it seems impossible, or else they are just you know, I joke that I'm going to write the Bonnie and Clyde travel guide sometime. <laughs> but
0: <laughs> but they're, they're, <laughs> I mean, they became funny. they became folk legends or folk stars or something. I'm not even not even right. sure. They just developed their own cult following. It seems.
1: Yeah. But it all came to an end in 1934 when they were ambushed by law enforcement agents. And I, one of the quotes I got for the book, I got it from the paper that came out that day or the next day. And I really like to do that. I don't like to use modern sources. I like to go back as much as I can because I think even the phrasing, the way they would phrase words, can say a lot, too. So I got a quote from the Texas Ranger Frank Hamer who's very famous and he was quoted in the papers as saying, you know, I hated to bust a cap on a woman especially when she was sitting down. However, if it hadn't been her, it would have been us. And I thought it was interesting because even in 1934 there was still that, you know, that kind of a feeling of like you would never shoot a woman, you would right. never hit a hit a woman. It just shows a different and just his way. I hated to bust a cap on a woman. I thought that sounds so gangstery in a way. But he's the law enforcement agent. <laughs> um, but it was pretty horrid. It must have been a really horrifying sight because they were ambushed and the the law enforcement agents they emptied their guns on them and they had at least fifty bullets in each body. Now nowadays, if someone had is killed, we assume their next stop for the body is going to be a funeral home. Right. But But Bonnie and Clyde's bodies were taken to a furniture store in Arcadia, Louisiana. And we think, well, that must have been kind of weird. But no, for the time period, that actually made perfect sense. Oh, yeah, you know, a little town might not have a a funeral home for that kind of, you know, nearby or whatever. Furniture stores actually kind of their side hustle quite often was to be a morgue. Because they would, you know, furniture stores, and then they would, another side hustle would be, yeah, we build caskets. We'll store the body. We'll build the casket. So it's something we've kind of forgotten in our modern era. So I thought that was interesting. I I like to kind of include things that are very of the era. Um, Now, what happened? I felt sorry for that, that, uh, that furniture store because people somehow, word got out that Bonnie and Clyde, the infamous Bonnie and Clyde's bodies were there, and... They couldn't do anything about it. A stampede of people came through. I mean, doors were ripped off hinges. Furniture was trashed. Everyone wanted to get a look at their bodies. Um, they were then transferred from Louisiana. They were taken that night by ambulance, and they were taken to separate funeral homes, and they tried to keep it a secret. But, you know, same thing happened. Just people, a throng, like a game, mm-hmm. overwhelmed everybody and, you know, trashed the, the places Uh, Because, you know, they were just so famous.
0: Right. Yeah, everybody wanted to get a glimpse of them. And I can't imagine they were in any shape to be viewed. I mean, with 50 bullets in each body. Yikes.
1: It must have been horrifying. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What about the two men that were chained together in death? Were they buried together? And what's their story about?
1: Oh, I love this story. This one is so interesting. This is over in East Texas, a town called Jefferson, which is just a delightful, historic town. It still has a lot of old buildings up, and when you walk the streets of Jefferson, you really feel like you're walking back in time. But back in the 1870s, there were a couple men living there. There was Jesse Robinson and Bill Rose, and these two guys were just the worst badasses in town. They had such... They were known to be terrible. Like the local newspaper once described them as dangerous and bad men, either drunk or sober. And so no good church-going folks wanted to be seen in their company. So as far as friends went, Mr. Rose and Mr. Robinson, they just had each other. And I kind of like to describe them as frenemies because no one else would hang out with them, but so they would hang out with each other. And what happened is they ended up killing each other over the stupidest thing ever. One of them invited the other for a drink, and he declined. And he said, you know what? Drinking doesn't bring out the best in me. I don't feel like drinking today. Well, the other one got all offended, went home, came back with a gun. They shot each other. <laughs> and you know, like, I guess drinking doesn't bring the best out in either of them, drunk or sober, like the newspaper said. And so the locals, this is one of the weirdest graves I have ever seen, quite frankly. Now, legend has it that their coffins have chains between them. Like, they're in separate coffins, but they're chained together. I have not gone over with, like, you know, a metal detector or ground-penetrating radar. But what they do have, and if anyone wants to see this, they can go to my website but or buy the book. <laughs> but um, they have these two um, iron like they look like wood you know they're meant to look like two wood poles and they're covered with um each pole has ivy around it you know engraved around it now ivy in cemetery symbolism stands for friendship so there's two two like two poles and then there's a chain going between them so it's like they have this friendship but they're chained together through their bad decisions i guess i mean it's just one of the most interesting, strange, and very fitting, like very creative. Great.
0: What was your favorite? It might be hard to narrow it down to one.
1: Yeah.
0: So pick, pick, pick one for now. Maybe we'll have time for another one. But when you were researching and hearing these stories and learning about uh, these people that have been buried in these places, mm-hmm. what made your top, top of your list?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, I do have to say one of my favorites is the— uh, the the Rope Walker mystery because I um, there's a man buried in Corsicana, Texas, and all it says on this headstone is Rope Walker, 1884. And while I was digging around in some newspaper um, archives, I pieced together a story and I was able to find out his actual name, which no one has known. It was a case of, you know, this is one thing I think is so interesting is, you know, today we just take it for granted that everyone carries ID. And if they don't have ID, we could do dental records or DNA or look at CCTV. I mean, when you have none of that and you are traveling even 40 miles away from your hometown and you die, you might never be known. So that's what happened. This guy came to town and he he was a tightrope walker. Well, he was actually, first and foremost, he was selling wood stoves. But he decided to get attention. He would go to the busiest part of town. He'd string a line between two tall buildings, and he would do his tightrope walking between the two. Now, to top it off, he put a wood stove on his back. And as if that wasn't enough, he was one-legged. So he had a little notch. I know. It's just the craziest tale. This guy, talk about a great sense of balance. (laughs) So he was about halfway across when uh, the iron bar that he tied his rope to broke off. And he fell, tumbled to the ground, and his stove landed on his good leg, and they had to amputate it. And before he could recover or really come to, he he died. He was able to tell them that he was Jewish, and so they did bury him in the Hebrew cemetery, but it's remained a mystery. And if you read the book, I I actually— pieced it together, and I found his stage name, and then I found his real name, and I was so excited. So I would have to say that is one of my favorites.
0: That's that's really interesting for sure. You also wrote about um, a person buried in a kiss, as in the band Kiss casket, <laughs> with an Eddie Van Halen guitar. What 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 is this about?
1: I know. Okay, I almost mentioned this one because I do like, yeah. So, you know, the band Kiss they talk about merchandise. You know, most bands will have t-shirts and maybe they'll have posters. Right. Oh, maybe a coffee mug or something. Well, oh, the band kiss, they also have what they call a kiss casket and they spelled casket with a K. And it's, you know, it's, if you're a big fan of, you can look it up online and Google kiss casket and you'll see what we're talking about. is for real. Well, uh, there is a band where well, there was a band called Pan- Pantera and, their lead guitarist was known as Dimebag Darrell, and back in 2004, this crazy idiot jumped onto the stage and just shot Dimebag oh, yeah. in the head. I remember that. Yeah. Times. yeah, it was horrifying. I mean, and it just yeah. So he died instantly, and and the guy who shot him was you know caught and killed shortly after. So no one. I mean, it was just one of those senseless, horrifying things. But um, Dimebag had been really inspired by Van Halen. And, you know, shortly before his death, he actually got the chance to meet Eddie Van Halen, and they really hit it off. I mean, his, he, he, his guitar playing was very influenced by Eddie Van Halen, and, and when they met, they just really, you know, clicked, connected in the way that two people with a real common, you know, um, I don't know, a common talent can. And Dimebag said he wanted to buy um, a guitar, from Eddie Van Halen, there's a, there's one that's uh, known as his bumblebee guitar. It's a black guitar, but it has yellow and black stripes on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Eddie Van Halen just, uh, without being asked, he showed up to the memorial service for Dimebag Daryl, and he handed over his actual uh, bumblebee guitar. And he told um, Dimebag's you know, life partner, that hey, you know, Dime was an original, and you know, an original should have an original here he given this and so he is buried with his idol's guitar and it's really cool.
0: Wow. Um what about Lee Harvey Oswald's grave? First of all, is that accessible to the public? And secondly, you you mentioned there's an empty grave with a headstone that reads Nick Beef next to that
1: grave. <laughs> yeah, this is such a strange one too. So, you know, when we all know that November 1963 was not a good time in Dallas. Right, Kennedy was assassinated, and shortly after Lee Harvey Oswald was was shot. And maybe because of things that had happened with Bonnie and Clyde, you know, when his when he was shot, no funeral home would take his body. I maybe they were thinking like, we know what happened when Bonnie and Clyde died. People stormed our funeral homes, so they they. Carefully transported him over to Fort Worth, which is about 30 miles away, and they used a pseudonym and they buried him and you know very secretively, like the they just they did the best they could because they didn't want to have a riot. Uh, now his headstone is one of those ones we were talking about earlier. just like a little flat rectangular, mm-hmm. almost looks like a brick. All it says is Oswald. It doesn't have his first date, his death date. It doesn't have his first you know just to say Oswald is enough. Now, there is an empty plot on either side of him, or there was. When his mother passed away, she was buried in one, and there's nothing there. It doesn't say Oswald or Mrs. I mean, you know, Mom or anything on it. It's just – it's blank. But in 1997, one that looks kind of like Oswald's appeared, and it says Nick Beef on it. And, you know, you can imagine there's already – Enough conspiracy theories going on sure. surrounding this whole thing. So when Nick Beef appeared, people were saying all sorts of things about it. And uh, one thing that kept coming up for me, I kept people kept telling me that, oh, people, someone, a local historian, bought that. So that you can go and ask them at the uh, cemetery, oh, where is Nick Beef's grave? And they will direct you to it because they won't tell you where Oswald's grave is. But that didn't quite ring true to me. That just wasn't working. I when I um, had spoken to I have some friends who actually work in the funeral business around here and make monuments and stuff, and they were like, they don't tell you where anybody's grave is at that particular cemetery. They were like, it's not like they're not telling you where Oswald's is, they won't tell you where anybody's is. So because every cemetery has a different policy on that. Since I, sometimes I'm trying to find my, – my, my big tip for people is talk to a caretaker. Be nice to the person who's out there mowing the lawn. Right. They're, they're your friend. They know where everything is. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, so this Nick Beef thing, um, finally in 2013, the New York Times interviewed him. They tracked him down. And Nick Beef is actually the stage name for this guy who's um, – he described himself as a non-performing performance artist. And he just he grew up in Texas. He was deeply affected by the assassination of JFK. And his mom, for some reason, would often take them to visit Oswald's grave. And she didn't really say why. So for him, it was just as weird. It felt meaningful for him. He, he discovered that, oh, that plot is empty. He bought it and he put that marker there. And the funniest thing of all is that when he dies he plans to be cremated and he doesn't even want to be buried there so it's that always going to be empty yeah
0: that was going to be my next question does he intend to be interred there after he dies but uh, you just answered that he doesn't that's very odd i know it's just odd all the way around if you had to um look around the country and pick a cemetery that you have not visited that you really want to what makes your list
1: oh Wow, well, if there's somebody there or an interesting grave makes my list, I'm really fascinated. I would like to go to um, Mount Auburn Cemetery and that's the first garden cemetery in America, and uh, a lot of people listening have probably heard of Pere Lachaise in Paris, which I've never been to. but um this was the first time it was a Mount Auburn on the East Coast was patterned after. Um, perilous chaise because they wanted to create a, a place where people could go and it would be out of town the bodies wouldn't be in town and it was like a it was like a park it, it was america's first parks were actually their cemeteries is what i'm stumbling around here <laughs> and mm. saying we're the garden cemeteries uh, nowadays we don't We don't expect to have people buried in our parks, but when public parks were first created, they were created as these garden cemeteries. So people would go there on the weekends. They They would have carriage rides. They would set up their easels and paint. It was for recreation and to see and be seen. As well as to visit your ancestors' graves but but it was also a, you were they were laid out in such a way as to create stunning views uh to commune with nature to to also appreciate the sculpture to be like a sculpture garden uh so, yeah, that was, they were really quite interesting. So I would like to see some of those. And some of them have actually achieved arboretum status because the plants there are, you know, antique plants. They're plants that you can't get elsewhere. So I think that is one of the importance of historic cemeteries is they actually preserve trees and plants that that uh, are historic.
0: Do celebrity graves interest you at all? I mean, I know there are, you know, people that make careers out of pointing out and giving tours to celebrity graves, particularly around Hollywood, does that interest you at all? Oh, yeah, that does. That does. Um, probably not as much 100. as not as much as an alien grave or uh, two <laughs> uh, two men that were chained together. I mean, those are far more interesting stories for sure. Yeah.
1: I'm- so much into the fact that okay, this person was well known and they have a listing on IMDb or something. It's to me, it's like they sh- they should make a movie about this person. This because yeah. this person should be a character in a book. We should know about Marine Johnson Johnson. I'd watch a show about her. I'd watch a show about those two guys who killed each other over the drink and <laughs> got chained together. I mean, I would. I would. I kind of write these thinking, yeah, these should be made and hit the silver screen. So. Yeah, I, I like the famous ones, but there's a lot of should be famous ones that I wanna
0: find. Do you know and maybe you've even visited the grave, is Buddy Holly buried in Texas? He was from Texas.
1: He is. He's in Lubbock. Um and I you know, he's on my, my Texas to do list. There are a lot of them that didn't make the book. In fact I I do see this as being part of a series. Um I could. I would like to do one that's just all focused on maybe unique animal graves from around America. So if people know, because I, I know some really interesting stories. I know about a, a jazz era monkey that's buried in a restaurant courtyard in Florida. That this monkey actually got an engraved invitation to the Scopes monkey trial. Things like that. You know, uh, I just I I think that uh, I think there are a lot more stories to be told. <laughs>
0: The um, p- people who uh, may be thinking to themselves, well, I'd love to go, you know, look at whether it's any of these we've talked about tonight, Tui, or just, you know, go to their local cemetery and walk through and appreciate it. How, what, do you, what do you recommend um, that they do to make sure, A, they're not disrespectful in any way, but what should they be looking for to really appreciate what they're looking at?
1: Oh, well, yeah. And I usually do. I didn't in this book, but in my cemetery symbols, I have a safety and etiquette section um, just to because I think we a lot of us feel uncomfortable in cemeteries and don't quite know what to do. But I, I'll i put that aside and say that um, I would say, you know, once you, I mean, definitely if I show up to a more modern cemetery and I see someone who appears to be mourning or there's a service and pro- process yeah. and, you know, I, I, I want to get some EVPs, I don't. Without a K two meter, I you know if you're doing like I very I just leave and come back. There's other cemeteries to go to, but I highly recommend going to findthegrave.com. dot com. That is such a wonderful resource, and you could find out. So it's a really great stepping stone. You can, I have their app on my phone because when I'm on a road trip, I look. Oh, are there any cemeteries near me? And then I <laughs> and it'll tell me what's and, it called you know, again. It's called findagrave.com. Find a Grave. Mm-hmm. a okay. Yes, so that's a really wonderful website. I would say that's a really good starting point. Um, yeah, I, I bet a lot of people are already going there, but uh, who are listeners. But yeah, I would really say that's a, a great resource. And, and you can just uh, find out, you know, start your resource there. And then when you're walking through the cemetery, just uh, look for the names. Like we were talking at the very beginning of our conversation, just Follow your feet, and, and if, a, if a name calls to you, do a little research on it uh, when you get home. Google Honey, it and, and, yeah,
0: So that's how you do it. You, you, If you see a name that you think, hmm, that's some reason that connects to me and I want to check it out, uh, you just go back and just Google it, or is there another source? Well, that I go
1: to? into – I use a lot of um, – I have some – Free newspaper archives as well as some paid newspaper archives. Um, Some librarians I know have kind of given me access to some neat ones that are just for Texas. But uh, there are some – my name escapes me. There is this man – I think it's called the Fulton, New York postcards. I'm blanking. It is such a wonderful – old Fulton, New York postcards. Fulton – history.com this person has taken it upon them to themselves to uh to scan as many newspapers and magazines as they can and you can find some really obscure wow. articles through there so you could you know type in a date and a name and before you know it you get lost you'll be having to set a timer like i do because <laughs> research <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's great you think you're researching one thing and it just it just escalates
0: wow what's your next project um, Tui, what do you what do you what are you doing next?
1: Well, I always have several going. I'm I'm like one of those people who juggles plates. I have a a humorous dementia caregivers guide <laughs> or a memoir, I should say, from when I had uh was for several few years here. I was I was a full-time caretaker for my father-in-law who had dementia. And we had a lot of funny moments uh, together, but I, and I never intended to write it as, that as a book. I just, but every time he said something funny, I wrote it down. But I also, of course, the 1897 airship mystery, I have just got to, that one is high on the list because it's just, okay, you know, I just have to get that one out. I have so much research and I really want to share it with people. Um, yeah. So I've I always got several projects going. I, I do love writing books.
0: I'm just reading our chat here. It appears that one of our chatters, uh, Jean, in our YouTube chat, says she's a volunteer with the Find a Grave site. Okay. Oh! Awesome. Wow! That's terrific.
1: She's my hero. (laughs) Yeah, I love
0: that. That is such a great place. Where can people find, uh, whether it's this book, which, uh, again, is Six Feet Under Texas, or any of the other ones that you have published?
1: Yeah, Six Feet Under... uh, um, Amazon is a really great place if they want to find my books. And um, a really good place to go would be, also since we're all on YouTube right now, or a lot of us are, I do have a YouTube channel and I love to share research there. Uh, um, so that's a good spot. But uh, my books are all available on Amazon. You can find them there and just dig in.
0: <laughs> well, it's been terrific having you back on the program, too. I, I love your work. I find it fascinating. And the, and the way you bring these stories to life makes it extra special.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's really fun talking to you, and, and you, I've enjoyed your chatting with your listeners a little bit there during the break.
0: Look forward to having you back again at some point. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation, Recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com.